Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul around A.D. 60. It's what we call an epistle. And there's different genres of literature throughout the Bible, which is good to recognize. We oftentimes spend a lot of time in prose and narrative. Seventy percent of the Bible is narrative. There's poetry and there's wisdom literature in the Bible as well. And then particularly in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul, there are a number of letters that we refer to as epistles. This particular epistle, once again, was written by Paul to the church at Philippi, which was in Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece. And it was actually a letter of friendship that he was writing to them. And an important detail that should not be lost on us is that Paul wrote this letter in prison. Paul wrote a number of other letters in prison as well that we often refer to as epistles. Another thing that's characteristic of epistles, they tend to be a little more didactic, focused on teaching principles. And so we will see that even as we embrace that here today. Uh, Our series for Easter for the next six weeks from the book of Philippians, I'm entitling Resurrection Joy. The resurrection, as we looked at last week, is a proclamation and an announcement of hope. And as a result of the hope that we have in the reality of the resurrection, the effect, among other things of that, is joy. Joy is a consistent thread and theme throughout the book of Philippians. Paul mentions it no less than 16 times in this short letter. Clearly, Paul and this church were people of the resurrection, and one of the effects of the resurrection upon them was a real spirit and embrace of joy. We have a hard time with joy because we make it so synonymous with circumstances, right? I talked a couple weeks ago at the triumphal entry that we have a hard time with sadness. The truth is, I'm realizing, we just have a hard time with emotions, period, as far as acclimating them appropriately and well in our lives, and then how the Bible speaks to that, which it does repetitively. A classic example of that would be the book of Psalms. But just like we have a hard time with sadness, as in Christians don't know how to be sad, Christians also, interestingly, oftentimes seemingly don't know how to embrace joy, right? The joy that Christians often embrace is more fake or plastic joy, or it's just non-existent joy, which is problematic because we do live prior to the new heavens and the new earth, which is going to be ultimate, full joy fulfilled holistically, and that's going to be amazing, and that has not happened yet. So we live pre-new heavens, pre-new earth, but we live post-resurrection which gives us joy in the midst of sorrow and sadness. One commentator, Gordon Fee, speaking about joy in the book of Philippians, says this, and then we'll read our text. Joy is how believers who know Christ and whose futures are guaranteed by Christ respond in the context of present difficulties. Keep in mind, Paul writes repetitively about joy in prison. All right? Not because they like to suffer, but because their joy is in the Lord. But joy is not a feeling, it is an activity. Above everything else, joy is the distinctive mark of the believer in Christ Jesus. And in this letter, it comes most often as an imperative. 
It's interesting. Whatever else, life in Christ is a life of joy. Stand with me. As we hear from Philippians chapter 1 verses 3 through 11. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always and every prayer of mine for you. All making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth, and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I had the privilege and challenge in the summer of 2001 in New York City, it was my first visit to New York, of serving at a historic mission in Midtown named St. Paul's House. St. Paul's House fed people from the streets and did a number of other holistic services for people seeking to embody the goodness and the grace of the gospel in the city. And so I was leading a group of college students for a couple mornings of mission there where we cooked breakfast and we led some worship and then there was a time of teaching. And I had, once again, the privilege and challenge of teaching briefly one morning a group of men and women from the streets of New York City. And as they gathered in there, it was a pretty raucous group to begin with, even though it was early. Chaos would be one thing that characterized this setting after breakfast, and we tried to do somewhat of a worship song like we did, you know, kind of at RUF back in Knoxville, and then it was my turn to get up and speak, and I was not particularly nervous about the act of speaking. I had done that a pretty good bit, but I was a little bit nervous about the context and what kind of bridges needed to be covered between me and these folks, and so I got going and and immediately and seemingly repetitively was interrupted. I remember this one older man on the front, as I was just getting going, said, excuse me, do you know what country has the best butter in the world? I said, no. And he said, the Danish do. And I said, all right, that's great. And that was it. And so then I kind of get back to my notes and uh, I I keep going. And um, it's more chaos and, and, and more disruption But I'm trying to, you know, I I distinctly remember a really powerful illustration about reading the subway map and how we have to have guides in life and trying, you know, to relate there. And it it was, I don't know if it was landing or not. And about halfway through, and this is really only about five minutes in, this was not going to, this was definitely in the realm of like a devotion or homily, like no more than 10 minutes. But halfway in, 
um, there starts to be some disruption and almost a fight that breaks out at the back of the room. There's about 50 people there. And then they settle that down. And as if that was not distracting enough, right after that, a uh, elderly African-American woman stands up and says, excuse me. Hi, my name is Sister Mary. And I said, well, hi, Sister Mary. Good, good to meet you. And uh, then she sat back down and then I got going again, only to find more disruption. And literally, that was about a minute after Sister Mary introduced herself. And I just said, okay, let's close in prayer. And I started to do that. And a man on the front row said, don't. You need to finish. He said, what you're saying is good. And I don't care if anybody else is listening. You need to be faithful and you need to finish. And I said, yes, sir. (laughs) I I think that I will finish. That story, among other things, exposes our lack of finishing and persevering well. It's very easy for us in adverse circumstances to simply want to close in prayer. A.K.A. give up. The main thing I want us to see from Philippians chapter 1 this morning is that God never gives up. That God is faithful. You see that specifically in verse 6. Paul reflects with joy upon this central reality. He who began a good work in you, despite the chaos of the world, despite conversations about Danish butter, despite Sister Mary introducing herself in the midst of it, he who began a good work will be faithful to finish it. And that should give us great joy and encouragement this morning. As Paul reflects upon the central guiding reality, which happens to be in the middle of this section of verses, what Paul is saying is God is faithful and that brings him joy. It's the orienting understanding of who Paul is, both personally and when he thinks about this community. When he thinks about this community whom he calls his partners in the gospel, his partakers of grace. You see, the gospel is a pronouncement that God is faithful, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That's grace. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That's grace lived out. And grace and the gospel and God's faithfulness is at the center of what it means to know Him. It's also the primary distinction between Christianity and any other religion. Bono of U2, in his book, In Conversation, he's a Christian, as a side note, says this, you see at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, What you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. It is clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that. As you reap, so will you sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions 
which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. That's grace. That's the gospel. That is a proclamation that God is faithful. I don't know if you catch it each week when we get to the assurance of pardon, but I intentionally and specifically say, hear this assurance of the gospel, which is not good advice, but it is good news. And I'm afraid the church and Christians, we don't understand that. It's an announcement. It's a proclamation that says, you think that you're bad, you're far worse than you've ever imagined. You think that you're loved, you're far more loved and accepted and forgiven in Christ than you've ever dared to dream. And that's good news. That's not good advice. The gospel is a proclamation that says Christianity is not primarily about what you must do and how you must be faithful. But Christianity is primarily precipitated upon this. What God has done. And how He is faithful. Do you understand the difference? Paul wants us to understand this difference here at the beginning of this letter. If we want to understand more fully what he has to say, we have to understand that we have a proclivity to think about the gospel as good advice. And we have a proclivity to think about Christianity primarily being about what we must do versus what God has done. And we have a proclivity to be tempted to think about a life with God as precipitated upon my faithfulness. I've got to begin this work and I've got to be faithful to complete this work in my own life and the lives of those in my family. And guess what? That's not good news. That's a crushing burden. And there's no joy in that. But here comes Paul with this idea of grace and gospel and joy. And he says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in you. And and working from that proposition, Paul then prays. And that's what I want us to look at in a little more detail this morning. Paul prays for two things based upon the fact that God is faithful. Because God is faithful... Paul prays with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving, and he prays for our fruitfulness, our faithfulness. Because God is faithful, Paul prays with thanksgiving, and he prays for our faithfulness or our fruitfulness. Let's unpack a little bit more this idea of Paul praying for thanksgiving. But before we do that, let me say a brief word, and there could be a lot that could be said about this, but I'll be brief about prayer in general. You know, prayer is conversing with God. Prayer is being in relationship with God. Prayer is verbal, but it's not only verbal. Prayer is speaking, but it's also listening. Even the scripture in Romans says that we pray when we groan. Puritans used to say, pray as you think. Pray about anything that moves you deeply. You see, we overcomplicate what prayer actually is. And we also underestimate what prayer can do. I had a seminary professor that used to talk about prayer. And at one point, he made a side comment. Didn't even make a big point about it, but impressed really deeply upon me. He said, you know, I often wonder if Satan is intimidated by our prayers. And he wasn't saying anything against praying for even trivial 
or mundane things. God is the Lord, of, the Lord of all, over all things. So there's nothing that we can't pray about, but it just seems he was saying we leave so much on the table when it comes to prayer. Our prayers often lack power and punch and effectiveness. And so I don't know about you, but I'm always looking to understand prayer more, which is primarily understood by just doing it as a side note, right? Like that's how you learn to pray. How do you learn to pray? You just pray. That's how you learn to pray. And then another thing that I'm always looking for personally, and I gather this is true for you too, to, I don't know that I love the way I'm saying this, but I'll say it anyway. I'd like my prayers to have better content. I'd like my prayers to have more creativity. I'd like my prayers to be more universal, more deep, more whole. It's one of the reasons I like corporate confession of prayers that are already written for us. They make us pray about things that we don't think of. Because I kind of always pray the same things, and it pretty much sounds like, help me to have a good day, help me to be safe, amen. Paul actually instructs us with some specificity here. If if we don't leave with anything else today, we're going to leave with a pretty good outline for new ways to pray. And the two overarching things that we see, because God is faithful, Paul prays with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is an extremely powerful emotion. I heard a psychologist who's a Christian say recently, the two most powerful emotions in the world, and he, I think he would even say explicitly in Scripture, are sadness and thanksgiving. And we need to become very familiar with and accustomed to both of them. I love Psalm 50. It's a reflection where the psalmist is speaking and God is speaking through the psalmist. And at one point, God is speaking and he says, look, I have everything. It's the classic psalm that some of you would be familiar with. I own own the cattle on a thousand hills. If I were hungry, I wouldn't ask you for food. It's kind of, I like these points in scripture that seem a little sarcastic are always kind of interesting to me. And the point is, because I don't need anything. But verse 14 says, however, I have everything, so I don't need anything. However, here's one thing you could give me that would be delightful. A sacrifice of thanksgiving. What do you give to the person that literally has everything? God. Paul gets it. You give him thanksgiving. Paul is thankful for God, and Paul is thankful for his community. But then secondly, and where we're going to spend more time, Paul not only prays, with thanksgiving, but Paul prays for faithfulness among the people in the Philippian church. Paul prays for their fruitfulness, and he prays for their fruitfulness and faithfulness in three specific ways. And if you have your bulletin, you can look at verses 9, 10, and 11. Verse 9 teaches us that Paul prays for love. Verse 10 teaches us that Paul prays for moral discernment. And verse 11 teaches us that Paul prays for righteous living. Now, if you don't hear another thing that I say, there's your new prayer outline. There's plenty of prayer outlines in Scripture, but here's a new one. I just don't know, how how should I pray for my children? Pray for love, pray for moral discernment, and pray for righteous living. How should I pray for resurrection as a church? Pray for love, pray for moral discernment, and pray for righteous living. How should I pray for my coworkers? Pray for love, pray for moral discernment, 
and pray for righteous living. It is okay to pray for myself. How should I pray for myself? I don't know. I'd try praying for love, moral discernment, and righteous living. Let's unpack these a little bit more. Paul begins, and I think these are sequential. By the way, I think they build on each other. I think we can say Paul first and foremost prays for love because love is greater than all. Paul actually says that in another place specifically. You know, some of you, I should say, don't ever want to take for granted that everyone knows these things. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 begins by saying, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Side note, that's how tons of non-Christians hear Christians. Because there's no love. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, who cares? If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Some of you would know that there's various Greek words for love. Essentially, if we want to paraphrase, love throughout the Bible is always synonymous with sacrifice. And guess what? Sacrifice is a verb. Love is an emotion. Love is emotional. But love primarily is an action. It's a sacrifice. And Paul has this for these people so much so that he's sitting in prison for the love that he has for the gospel, for the love that he has for Christ, and for the love that he has for his people. And why in the world would he do this? And you need to hear this because it's really simple. Because he is loved. We love because we have first been loved. It's so easy, is it not, to slip already into moralism. We said all that good stuff about the gospel in the beginning, that Christianity is not about what you do, it's about what God has done. And then we get to this point and Paul prays with love and we immediately start thinking, I'm a bad prayer. And then we turn to, I need to pray better. Okay, in order to pray better, I need to be more loving. None of which are false, but all are precipitated upon the wrong thing if we don't understand that we are loved. And out of being loved, we love. So Paul prays for that. Paul also prays for moral discernment. And I confess, I could get sidetracked really easily and deeply and long here. And I'm just telling you that out loud so that I try not to. Verse 10 says, So that you may approve what is excellent, And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul is praying that we would approve what is excellent. You know, there's an inverse or a negative to that as well. And Paul actually in Romans chapter 14 verse 22 speaks and says this, Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Do we approve what is excellent, what is moral, what is right, or do we approve that which is not? 
At this point, it would be good to start to do some self-reflection and ask, what do I approve of explicitly or implicitly? The implicit might be more powerful than the explicit because oftentimes what we say we approve of or don't approve of is actually not consistent with what we actually do approve of or not approve of. We don't approve of racism except when we do by our actions and by our jokes and by our sarcasm and by our oversimplification of hard social issues. At least at minimum, there's strong prejudice, right? We don't approve of a loosening sexual ethic that exists in our culture today that's massively confusing. But somehow we do approve of demeaning the opposite gender. We don't approve of adultery or marital unfaithfulness, but somehow we do approve of subtle slippages into lust on a daily basis, even on newsfeed pages, right? What do we approve of, and is it excellent? And what do we condemn, and is it right? This is a two-edged sword, both for the church and the culture, Because I think it's very easy for us, at least for me, when I think about practicing moral discernment, at this point I go into this culture's going to hell in a handbasket motif. Right? I get like really old at this point. I mean, I'm only 43, but somehow I'm transformed into a boomer. Like my parents. And I just want to like throw the whole culture under the bus, Right? But that would be a mistake, not to say that our culture doesn't have things that are worth being critical of, and we can talk about those a little bit, but let's start by taking heed to ourselves, right? Like, there's a massive lack of moral discernment in the church, and there shouldn't be. I'm not approving of a lack of moral discernment in the culture, but this is once again where there's another issue. Why do we continue to expect non-Christians to act like Christians? It doesn't mean that there's not a universal rule and law that must be upheld both in the land and in the universe at large, but we really, really have a problem in relating with other people when we consistently expect non-Christians, to act like Christians, especially when Christians don't act like Christians. The church needs moral discernment. David Wells, great theologian and scholar out of Gordon-Conwell Seminary, in his book, Losing Our Virtue, which has been written years ago, but still highly relevant, says these two things. The church itself is going to have to become more authentic morally for the greatness of the gospel. For the greatness of the gospel is now seen to have become quite trivial and inconsequential in its life. If the gospel means so little to the church, if it changes so little, then why should unbelievers believe it? The evangelical church today, with some exceptions, is not very inspiring in this regard. 
It is not being heroic. It is exhibiting too little of the moral splendor that Christ calls it to exhibit. Much of it instead is replete with tricks, gadgets, gimmicks, and marketing ploys as it shamelessly adapts itself to our emptied out, blinded, postmodern world. Can the church be authentically moral? Can the church, by the grace of God, exhibit moral splendor and beauty? It's a big question, and Paul is praying for this. The truth is, morality is decaying in our culture at large, and our culture needs the gospel. You see, Christianity does not, is not true because it works. It works because it's true. Christianity is not true because it works. It works because it's true. And I could give you a myriad of examples of this, but for whatever reason, the one in the forefront of my mind, because I just read it again the other day, and this comes out time and time again through all kinds of new news platforms, and it's about sex. You know what sex is most satisfying? Marital sex. Why? Because Christianity is true. And because God created things to be beautiful and lovely. And you've got people that know nothing about Christ and the gospel. That study and experience and embrace small and big truths like that one. The culture is decaying and the culture needs to hear a message of beauty and joy and grace came across Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre recently in the preface to the second edition, which is in 1847. Charlotte Bronte, in response to the initial release of her book, says, conventionality is not morality. Conventionality is not morality. And self-righteousness is not religion. To attack the first is, to not, is not to assail the last. To pluck the mask from the face of the Pharisee is to not lift an impious hand to the crown of thorns. These things and deeds are diametrically opposed. They are as distinct as vice is from virtue. Men too often confound them and confuse them. They should not be confounded. Appearance should not be mistaken for truth. Narrow human doctrines that only tend to elate and magnify a few should not be substituted for the world-redeeming creed of Christ. There is, I repeat it, a difference. And it is a good and not a bad action to broadly and clearly draw the line and separation between them. Conventionality is not morality. It doesn't work. And self-righteousness is not religion. What does it look like to practice moral discernment? It means to have the mind of Christ as we engage the world. It means to repress expressive individualism and to embrace community and authority. It means that we can't espouse the virtues of hard work and economically take advantage of the less fortunate. 
It means that we cannot champion financial generosity and then not participate in it ourselves. You know, humility is not moral. I mean, humility is not immoral, it is moral. And pride is immoral. What does it look like to practice morality? It looks like we are to be humble. Before we move to the close and look at this idea of righteous living, which was intentional to be less involved in this, I would encourage you to reference and to see David Brooks, who's a columnist for the New York Times and the Atlantic. He's got a writing called The Moral Bucket List, and in it, he teases out something that I think is genius. He says, we're so consumed with resume, resume virtues in life. What if we were consumed with eulogy virtues? His moral bucket list focuses on eulogy virtues, not resume virtues. Paul prays for love. Paul prays for moral discernment. And then Paul prays, lastly, for righteous living. But did you see how he says it in verse 11? He prays that we would be filled. Is that active or passive? That we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. God fills. We receive. God requires righteousness, and God gives the righteousness He requires. So Paul prays that they would love, and Paul prays that they would be discerning, and Paul prays that they would exhibit righteousness, and then Paul embraces what he already embraced in the beginning by saying this, Jesus was perfectly loving. Jesus always practiced moral discernment. And Jesus lived righteously. And the good news is, He died for the fact that you did not. And as a result of that death and resurrection, you now are empowered with joy to live a life of love. To live a life of moral discernment, which this culture and this church needs so badly. And to live a life of righteousness exhibited by the fruit in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you speak to us where we are. We thank you for the Apostle Paul who was really human, who was really broken, and who really understood the gospel truly. We pray that we would understand the gospel truly, maybe for the first time, And for others, we pray that we would understand the gospel more fully. We pray that this gospel would permeate our lives and we would be people that are loving, that are discerning, and that are fruitful. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.